ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. Today, getting to green. So there are a couple of percentages that are really important. 43% and 82%. They're key numbers in Australia's transition to net zero. By 2030, our emissions are supposed to be 43% below 2005 levels. And a big part of getting to that is the other number, 82%. That's how much of our electricity we're supposed to get from renewables. At the moment, it doesn't look like we're going to make it. So today on The Money, why that is... But before we get into that, where do these targets, these percentages, where do they come from? It appears that the numbers actually emerged from some economic modelling that the Labor Party had done before it got into government. Tony Wood's the Program Director for Energy and Climate Change at the Grattan Institute. That modelling has never been released, so it's actually challenging for someone like me to say, well, was that modelling right or wrong? But the um, underlying assumptions were two. Firstly, when the government looked at the numbers this time last year, it looked like based on the uh, the department's projections, we were going to get to about 30%, uh, maybe 32% below 2005 levels by 2030. That's 32 versus what is now 43. The 43 was then assumed to come about from two policies. One was that we would get to the 80% renewables that you mentioned before by 2030, and the other was that we'd have a major impact on industrial emissions. That's supposed to happen through the safeguard mechanism, which from July this year requires our biggest emitters to reduce their net emissions by 4.9% a year. It's complicated, it's controversial and worth a show to itself. We're not talking about it today. What we'll focus on is the renewable energy bit, the 82% target. And obviously, how well we go with that affects how well we go with reaching our total emissions target of 43% below 2005 levels. On our current trajectory, we're most unlikely. The legislation that the government then enacted locks these into legislation. At least the 43% is locked in legislation. That means that the minister, Chris Bowen, has to report back to parliament with an annual climate change statement. How are we going? Now, December last year, he did so. The previous government left their projected emissions reductions by 2030 at only 30%. The projections I'm releasing today show the actions and policies of this government so far have increased this projection to 40%. That is, we've lifted the outlook by a third in our first six months. And policies we received a mandate for and are working to implement will lift our result to at least 43%. And at that time, the assumptions were that if we did everything that the government had announced in their policies, we would get there. So that looked pretty good then. But the problem is that a number of those things that were assumed are not happening. And as a consequence, we look like we're really struggling to get 43. It could be done, but boy, it's hard from here. Maria Petkovic is the Managing Director of Consultancy Energy Synapse. So at the moment in Australia's national electricity market, about 36% of electricity is generated from renewables. Um, So there is a long way to go there. Uh, So we need to more than double the amount of 
wind and, and solar that we have in the grid. Uh, and then we also need to increase the storage that we have by more than five times. So it's certainly a challenge to get there. There have been uh, reports recently in the media that we are going to fall short of that target based on our current pace. And, and that's something that we're seeing on our end as well. Uh, but this is such a massive opportunity for Australia in terms of the economy, in terms of jobs. Um, so it's not something that we can afford to put in the too hard basket. We don't want to do that, but it's definitely hard. It's a big change, right? Because we got from 11% in about 2000 to 35% um, now. So that's 24% increase in the last 25 years. We've got to get a another 47% increase in the next seven years. That gives you an idea of how much difference we have to make. Now, the problem is that we have been building solar and wind farms where the transmission grid allowed for it, but we've now run out of that allowance and we've got to build more transmission. We also have to build storage because wind and solar are by their very nature intermittent and we've not been doing that very well either. And so we're running into those challenges that we're not getting this done And at the same time, the cost of a lot of this stuff has been escalating dramatically. So Maria, is the problem not having enough infrastructure coming down the pipeline? So the pipeline is one area where we're actually doing really well. Uh, So this is something that we um, track at Energy Synapse. We we look at all the projects that are under development and where they're up to. There's about 170 uh, gigawatts of large-scale renewables and storage. Um, So that's about three times more than what we actually need to to get to that 2030 target. Uh, And then there's also about 54 gigawatts of battery storage. So that pipeline is massive. Um, Now, obviously, not all of these projects will get built um, because through any pipeline process, what companies are trying to do is find the most feasible ones and, you know, figure out which ones are the best to actually put their money into. Uh, But what this does show is that there is such a huge appetite from the renewable energy industry to actually build these projects. So, you know, the, the industry is absolutely ready and able to step up and meet that target. Where the bottleneck is, isn't actually taking these projects from concept to being a built and operational project. I believe it is mainly because of uh, some poor planning. Lasantha Miga-Hapala is at RMIT University in Melbourne. So we should have planned these things uh, decades ago. If we have planned these things decades ago, like in European countries, probably uh, we should have done better. For example, I know how Ireland has planned their uh, renewable energy transition. I know how the Germany has planned their transition. So they use a stage approach. Rather than, uh, you know, commissioning 10,000 kilometers of transmission line, they have built the transmission corridors stage by stage. And also they have built up the things more gradually with the new technologies. So all of a sudden, we want to move into a green energy transition. And I would say it's a costly transition as well. So as a result, we end up with this situation now. Right. So we needed to do the planning a decade or so ago. In fact, I think Germany started their planning in the first decade of this century. Of course. They have started early 2000s. And also some other European countries like Ireland, Spain, they also did the same. So we should have done it uh, like that rather than five years ago. Look, that's almost certainly true um, because we, we've had this climate war in Australia, which has meant we didn't focus on the right things. And part of it is this right thing. And I don't think, to be fair, if we had begun this 15 years ago, these issues we're talking about now 
would have been discussed 15 years ago, but we didn't. And so as a result, people really didn't really connect the dots and say, well, look, if we're going to do this, this is what has to be done. You can't just say, well, build the transmission line and the renewables will automatically come. That's not the way this works. And we now see that. And we're now realizing there are a lot of things need to be done. And now the timeline is against us, which means there are risks in doing things faster and we have to make some difficult choices. And not only do we have less time, we have a planning system that moves at, well, it's not breaking any records. The planning approval process um, takes a really long time in Australia. We've got clients that, you know, some of their projects have been stuck in these approvals for years and they're just sitting there. Um, And then, you know, even once you're through that, then there's the grid connection approval as well, which can also take um, a very long time. So, So those approvals and the timing around that is significant. And then, of course, you need to have a transmission network to actually connect into. So those projects then have their own approval challenges that that we need to solve. The transmission part is crucial. It's the pipe that brings the power from where it's made to where we need it. And just like a pipe, it can only cope with so much flowing into it at once. It's a big complex grid. It's one of the biggest integrated grids in the world. And it's a bit like a road system. If you've got congestion on the roads, it's hard to get onto the road if there's just no spaces in the traffic. It's a bit like that where we just haven't been, people have actually built some wind farms and they haven't been able to get their electricity into the grid because there was just too much wind farm already at that point. And that's why this is really the major choke point, I think. That choke point is having an effect on how well the grid works now. There's some parts of the grid that are quite heavily constrained and, you know, there's parts of New South Wales, for example, where solar farms might be losing 40% of their output due to, um, you know, grid constraints. But, I mean, that is relatively rare, so it tends to be much lower than that. Um, A lot of our clients are still finding that they can find spots to connect to into the existing grid. But this is really about the scale that we're trying to reach here. It's just not possible to get to that 20 or 30 target without that investment in transmission Um, And something that's become a little bit of a slogan in our industry is that there is no transition without transmission. We need a lot of it, an extra quarter of the whole network on top of what we already have. That's 10,000 kilometres of transmission wires marching across the landscape, a lot of it on land that's privately owned. The community consultation is very difficult. I mean, a lot of people don't really like the look of wind farms and solar farms, and you can argue about that, but nobody likes the look of a transmission tower. I'm Richard Aidey. You're with The Money, and today we're getting to grips with why one of the key climate change targets, 82% of power to come from renewables by 2030, is looking hard. One of the reasons for that is that we're not building the infrastructure fast enough, especially the extra transmission lines we'll need to both connect green power to the grid and to move it around as needed. We have cattle and sheep and a bit of cropping as well. So we run about 200 head of cattle, uh, 2,000 sheep and cropping either to sell like barley, canola or wheat or just crop that we make for hay or to feed our own stock. Emma Muir and her husband have a farm in Murnayong, about 70k west-northwest of Melbourne. And I'm the chair of the Moorable and Central Highlands Power Alliance. Emma, you're trying to stop something. What is it you're trying to stop? So we're trying to stop the Western Victorian Transmission Network project, which is now 
referred to as the Western Renewables Link. It's an overhead power line from Sydenham, uh, west of Melbourne to Bulgana near Ararat. It's 190 kilometres of overhead transmission lines. The towers that will host the lines are 85 metres tall, so as high as the MCG tower lights, uh, traversing 190 kilometres along through prime country, beautiful forests, real estate, and just gorgeous. Subsequently, the uh, Victorian government has also initiated the VNI West project, which is a project that would link from Bulgana uh, up past Sanana, Charlton, Kerrang, and up into New South Wales. That's another 200 kilometres of overhead power line. One of the issues I've been hearing about is community consultation in districts that will be affected, like yours. What has that been like? That's probably the number one thing, Richard, that we've found. The consultation has been absolutely appalling. Uh, the community engagement was essentially we we were contacted in um, 2020 during COVID about this project. We got told this is what we're doing. We were never considered a stakeholder. This project was started in 2018. They were talking about this project, but no landholders were ever at that table. No one was ever aware of what this project looked like. Uh, we have tried to engage with Andrew Dyer, um, who's the Federal Australian Energy Infrastructure Commissioner, and get him to help us improve Osnet's engagement with the community. It's fallen on deaf ears with Osnet for three years. You know, it's been a real eye-opener to our community how poorly we've been treated and also how little support we've had from the state government. Emma, if the bill does go ahead, I know it'll be an issue across the whole corridor, but how would it affect your place? We have a farming property. Uh, we would be impacted via um, our environmental issues. We're currently part of a biolink project through Landcare. We've planted tens of thousands of trees. It crosses the biolink in several places. Those would have to be removed. There's a limitation on trees underneath 100 metre the easement that they have. Uh, farming practices would need to change. Farming practices have evolved over the years. We now use helicopters and, and drones and all sorts of different things for spraying and and looking after our land. Those things will be cut out because it's too dangerous to obviously fly a helicopter or have a drone near a, a great big power line. Also, there's restrictions on heights of machinery that we can use under or near these power lines. So we've got a three-metre limit of um, machinery under those power lines. So, for example, a header or a tractor, sometimes they're taller than that, even even fire trucks are taller than that. So it really limits our infrastructure that we can use and, and how we can continue to farm. So we'd have to change the way we're farming. Also, we're severely impacted by fire risk. These power lines, uh, Osnet continuously tell us they don't start fires, but they will inhibit our ability to fight fires. We live very close to the Lunaderg State Park. And if there was to be a nasty fire come out of there, um, it would impact how we fight that fire with helicopters and, and also having trucks because they're not allowed to enter or go near these transmission line easements. Okay, that's a fair bit. Do you have an idea of what this would end up costing you? That's something we really need to look into and do. We have engaged a, um, a farm consultant to assist us with that because if we do lose this fight that we're in, we will need to make sure we are adequately compensated. Not that it's about money, but, you know, just as one quick example, I can give you every two years we use a helicopter 
to spray serrated tussock, which is one of the worst weeds that we have on our on our farm and in our region, that costs us probably five thousand dollars every two years. If we could no longer use a helicopter, we've estimated that would be about fifty thousand dollars a year getting someone to walk that area rather than use a helicopter. So it's a huge cost, to, additional cost to our property and our production. And we're not a huge farm, um, but it probably makes looking after our farm untenable. Emma, stopping this transmission line has been something you've thrown yourself into. It's been three years, I think you said. How's it affected you and your family and actually the wider district? It's been horrible. It's been the worst three years of our lives. Um, we fought it every day. I've quit my job. My husband doesn't sleep. Um, you know, he feels he's lost his family farm, that he's the one after five generations that is, is losing his farm because it's going to be ruined by these power lines. Other families along the alignment feel exactly the same. Not only do we farm and parent and look after elderly, you know, people, um, but other people have other jobs. We have normal jobs, but we spend full-time work on this power line project as well, trying to fight it, trying to find out what it means. You know, we, it took us six months to actually find out who was responsible for the project, where the buck actually stopped. I've heard people say that their children don't want to live there anymore. You know, this is really sad. We have fantastic rural communities. There's a little town near us, Bacchus Marsh, and they're impacted too. The tourism is impacted. You know, it's just people worrying. They're not sleeping. Mental health is a real issue for us, and there's no real assistance there either. All of which gets us back to what Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute has been saying. Firstly, we need to be much better at consulting with communities and letting them know what we're doing and why and how, and we haven't been doing a very good job of that. Secondly, money does make a difference, not for everybody, but usually um, if you're trying to build a power line or a uh, gas pipeline, whatever, you'll get 80, 90% of people, if you pay the money, to agree, because many of these people are business people anyway, and then getting some more revenue is a great idea. My husband and I would say that no amount of money compensates our generational family farm, the future of our children, and just having to look at these and live with this worry of these power lines for the next 50 years. It, nothing is enough money. There's not enough money. The state government is proposing a, a payment of um, per kilometre over 25 years. You, you would get 200000 But, you know, after tax and all of those things, it doesn't really um, stack up too much. Osnet will also have to compensate uh, us for, if the project goes ahead, for um, loss of production and things like that. But that's hard to estimate. I'm not confident that I can predict what's going to happen next year, let alone in 10 or 20 years' time. But it's not about money for us. It's more about... Um, you know, our livelihoods and, and our lifestyles, because I, I'm sure you're aware that when people live on a farm, it's not just your income, it's where you live, it's your family base, mm. it's a generational family base. It's very important and it's very hard to let go of. There will always be some situations where no money is going to be enough. And that's where governments, as a last resort, do need to think about turning to what they call compulsory acquisition. And that is basically say, we're going to pay you, uh, we're going to take it away from you, your your land or the right, the easement's going to be used on your land, and we're going to legislate for that or regulate for that. That's what has to be done. As a, but as a last resort, you don't start with that as a threat. You start with that as basically where you end up. A few days ago, the Moorable and Central Highlands Power Alliance, chaired by Emma Muir, sent a letter to the Australian Energy Market Operator. The Alliance says it's the first step in legal action to compel AEMO to scrap the Western Renewables Link in its current form and go back to the drawing board. Meanwhile, north of the Murray, Premier Chris Minns has just made it clear that he'll push ahead 
with the building of giant overhead cables to connect renewable energy projects in New South Wales. Watch this space. This is The Money, I'm Richard Aidey. And today, part of the problem with the green transition, building the transmission. This is a massive project, an extra 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines. There are big planning delays and some affected communities are up in arms. But what if some of it didn't need to be built? What if we could build less if we built smarter? The Santa Mega Hapala from RMIT University thinks that we can. He says adopting a couple of technical approaches could make a real difference. Primarily, we are talking about two approaches. Obviously, one is the battery energy storage systems, or simply the energy storage systems. And the second approach is to make the existing transmission lines more efficient through dynamic uh, line ratings. What it really does is when the wind blows, you can cool down the transmission lines so that it can carry more power. So you don't have to build additional corridors or you don't need to upgrade them. And the second approach is obviously the energy storage systems. The battery storage systems are the most commonly used approach. And we can build virtual transmission lines using batteries. So what we can do is we can store the locally generated renewables in a one big battery and then gradually we can transmit that energy into the major cities and the industrial prisons. So that way we can minimise the transmission lines in the network. So with the dynamic line rating, how much extra capacity do we get? It can carry between 15 to 20% extra power with the dynamic line rating and in some cases it can be more. So we have to do more studies to find out the exact number but obviously we can uh, get 15 20% uh, extra capacity from an existing transmission line. So we might not need an extra 10,000 kilometres? We might not need that much if we properly use these new technologies. But the question is uh, how much we can reduce it. So to get into that exact number, we have to do a proper planning. Are there places using either the virtual power networks with the batteries or the dynamic line rating? Dynamic line rating concept has been there for a while. Uh, I think uh, there are a number of uh, sites here in Australia as well, but I'm quite sure these uh, technologies have been used in Europe. For example, in Ireland, there are a number of lines using dynamic line rating. And when it comes to the virtual transmission lines, they have been applied in Germany and well as in Chile. And in addition to that, the US and France and as well as in India, they are trying to adopt this technology. So I think there are examples out there that we can uh, take a look at and see whether we can adopt these new technologies, of course. I imagine with the dynamic line rating, you need to have a good idea of the weather along the, the transmission corridor and you need the software to manage this for you. But apart from that, it doesn't sound like it's hugely expensive. What about the, the new technology batteries, though, for the virtual power lines? Obviously, the battery technology is expensive, uh, but the cost is coming down uh, rapidly over the last decade. And I think 
it would be more cheaper solution. And in addition to that, I believe uh, you can uh, use it for additional support for the network. For example, the network stability and reliability can also be improved with the battery storage systems. Lasantha says both of these approaches should be part of the planning framework because the efficiency gains they make possible means less transmission infrastructure. So fewer of those towers and lines snaking across the landscape. It's not just transmission where we're falling behind. The Clean Energy Council says investment in new solar and wind farms has stalled. Investment levels this year are half of the average over the last six years. Just four projects secured financial commitment in the June quarter. Partly, once again, this is caused by problems with planning. But there's something else too. The Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act is funding clean energy to the tune of more than $600 billion. The opportunities generated by that pool of money are pulling investment from all over the world, investment that might otherwise have come here. And it's not just about finance either. To build the infrastructure to get to 82% renewable energy by 2030, we need a huge skilled workforce that we don't have. Maria Petkovic from Energy Synapse. I mean, it's both a big challenge and also a massive opportunity as well. The clean energy transition is probably the biggest economic and and jobs creation opportunity that we'll have in our lifetime. Uh, But then that also means that, you know, you do need a lot of skilled people to actually bring these projects to life. Um, And, you know, industry associations like uh, Engineers Australia, I mean, they've been saying for years that we don't have enough engineers in this country and not just for the energy sector, but all the other industries that rely on on the engineering um, skill base as well. Uh, But then it's also, you know, trades. We're going to need to have a lot more apprentices. So really, we need to get better at building that pipeline of talent, which is more of a medium term solution, I guess. Uh, And then in the immediate term, uh, it's really important that, you know, organisations do have access to that skilled migrant labour and that was a real challenge during COVID with the border closures so that put a huge amount of pressure on on jobs markets and the labour market but you know having having access to that labour is that immediate solution to you know fill that short-term gap that we've got but then long-term we really need to be training up this expertise within Australia. Okay long-term and short-term that's workforce what do we need to do about planning? So on the transmission side, it's about fast-tracking the the transmission projects that are already part of that uh, very comprehensive blueprint that the um, Australian Energy Market Operator has put forward. We need to get those projects online sooner and have a a separate regulatory process to to the RET-T for those particular projects. Uh, And then in terms of all the planning for for renewables and grid connection, all of that needs to be uh, streamlined as well. Tony, I keep coming back to those numbers. Emissions, 43% below 2005. Renewables, providing 82% of electricity by 2030. They both seem like stretches at the moment, but they're foundational. Do we need to have another look at them? The problem we've got here is it's not with the targets per se. The problem is we've had uh, not had the credible policies and the processes to hit those targets. So it's a bit like saying we've got the dartboards, but we haven't got any darts. And that's where the challenges are. We keep announcing more and more targets, both at a state and a federal level, but where are the darts? I don't think we need both an emissions reduction target and a renewable energy target. If we have just 
a credible emissions reduction target, then the renewables will follow if they're the most uh, economically efficient way to meet that target. I think we need an emissions reduction target for electricity. It could be extending the renewable energy target. It could be using the safeguard mechanism into the electricity sector that we talked about before. We've also got to get on top of the reliable capacity issue. We need some sort of payment for capacity, including battery storage and possibly pumped hydro. And thirdly, we need to absolutely get on top of the transmission issue, and that requires serious coordination across federal, state and local government, and also with the market bodies who and the industry. That's not going to happen easily. It requires, I think, serious leadership, and uh, that could be a big opportunity uh, for Federal Minister Bowen. If you were Chris Bowen, what else would you do that we're not doing now? Yeah, so I mean, the biggest one is just that overhaul of the regulatory process. Um, And there are some reforms in the works, but I mean, they're just going too slow. The pace of regulatory reform needs to match the pace of the ambition for for the transition. Otherwise, we're not going to get there. Exactly. And we will get there eventually. The transition is unstoppable at the moment. It's a question of pace. So if we want to actually get to that 2030 target, then we need to accelerate these processes. Thanks to Maria Petkovic, Managing Director of Energy Synapse. You also heard from Tony Wood, Program Director for Energy and Climate Change at the Grattan Institute, Associate Professor Lasantha Miga-Hapala from RMIT University and Chair of the Moorable and Central Highlands Power Alliance, Emma Muir. If you listen to The Money via podcast, leave a comment or a review. It helps other people to find us. If you listen via the ABC Listen app, follow us. Then you won't miss a show. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 